And Isaiah 43, verse 19, it says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God is doing a new thing in the desert. And for the next four weeks, I want to encourage you, if you hear his voice speaking, do not harden your hearts. We're going to be looking at this together for the next four weeks. What God does in deserts. Now, for us, if we want to learn something, acquire a new skill or get a new qualification, we go to school or we sit an exam or we attend a night class, an evening class. For God, however, if he wants us to learn something, his mode of operating most often in the Bible is he sends his people into the desert, into the wasteland and the wilderness. Often they are literal deserts, as in the case of Abraham and Moses, Hagar and Jesus. But also it can be a wilderness experience, uh, perhaps a time of disappointment or of suffering, as in the case of Joseph and Hannah and others in Scripture. And just as a shepherd might plunge his sheep into a septic pit in order to remove parasites, so sometimes in life we are put through things that we'd really rather not go through. To us and to the sheep can often seem unnecessary, uh, harsh or even unloving. But to the one who knows what they're doing, to the shepherd, it's the exact opposite. Now this tells us something about ourselves and it tells us something about God. We are concerned with technique and with skill. God with patience and trust. We want results. God wants relationship. Think about it from God's point of view. He does not need you and he does not need me. Human beings were not a strategic or pragmatic invention dreamt up by the Godhead in some heavenly boardroom. We've got this planet. We need people to run it. Let's create some beings in our image. No. God chooses you and I, and he keeps you and I alive because he wants to. Isaiah, oh sorry, Psalm 44 says, Oh God, we have heard of you with our ears and what our, what our fathers have told us, how you've rescued them from their enemies because... You delighted in them. You delighted in them. He involves himself in your affairs and mine, and he has the ability to lead and direct us in such a way that we each individually feel that we are his only responsibility. There may be civil war and famine breaking out in one part of the planet, but to you and to me, it feels as though we're the only thing that's going on. He's near to you, just as he's near to them. Now, we're looking at this, and I mention this because we are, all of us, going through a global desert and a global wilderness, an unknown and hostile to human habitation world. What has God done in your life this year? What have you learned about yourself? Undoubtedly, there have been some really difficult times perhaps even some times of real despair and desperation. In fact, writing about Jesus' wilderness experience, the Christian writer Paul Miller says, In 
the desert, it can feel as though life has ended, that it no longer has any point. It's tempting to survive the desert by taking the bread of bitterness offered by Satan um, and to maintain a wry and cynical detachment from life. Is it there? No, it's not there. You can end up finding a perverse enjoyment in mocking those who still have hope. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you have developed over the past year a cynical detachment from life. That may be the armor, so to speak, that you've constructed for yourself to help you survive. It's the way that you perhaps have kept yourself safe from disappointment this past year. And it is an armor. It will protect you. But it's also restrictive. You can't grow in it and you can't dance. Now, whatever your strategy has been for surviving the grief of COVID, and it is a grief, I want to encourage you this morning to soften your heart and allow God to speak to you afresh. In the voyage of the dawn treader, Aslan turns Eustace from a dragon back into a boy. And Eustace says of the experience, when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like Billy. Oh, but it is such fun to see it coming away. In deserts, God turns dragons into sons and daughters again. And today we're considering what God does in the life of Moses. Moses as a baby, is saved from genocide out of the waters and then raised as the adopted royal son of Pharaoh. He would eventually go on to rescue his people from slavery and deliver to them a code of law that became the foundation and basis of our own legal system. The wilderness, however, is God's Bible college of choice. It says of Moses that he was there for many days. And in the book of Acts, we're told it was 40 years that he was a shepherd in the wilderness. Now, there's two things I want you and I to see this morning that God does in deserts, things that I believe he's wanting to do in your life, in us all. In the desert, number one, God refocuses our fear. And number two, he strips us of our self-reliance. God refocuses our fear. And he's wanting to refocus your fear. The Bible says that fear of man is a trap. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of death leads to lifelong slavery, the book of Hebrews tells us. But fear of God sets us free from slavery. Now I hear many people talking about the fear that they live with on a daily basis. And if it was bad before COVID, it is undoubtedly going to be worse after COVID. I've seen the affliction of my people, God tells Moses. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And I've come to deliver them. He hears and he cares and he delivers. And he's come to deliver you from that trap today as well. In the case of the Israelites, he delivers them out of slavery and he leads them into a desert. And when they're in the desert, he sees that they're still mighty scared of people. They say of the land that he's told them to go into. The people in that land are like giants and we're like grasshoppers before them. We can't do it when God hears this. Keeps them in, a de- in the desert a little bit longer to properly refocus their fear. But in the desert, God also 
strips us of our self-reliance, not just refocusing our fear. Let's look at Moses. So in Exodus 2 that Wendy read out for us, it says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked at their burdens and he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And a reaction of fear. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well, which is a juicy bit of detail. I love it. Uh, to those who know the Bible in, in Genesis and Exodus, and he sat down by the well is like, and Lucy hid from her brothers and sisters in a wardrobe. You know, you know something's about to happen. But anyway, we digress. Raised in the court of Pharaoh as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses was, was used to, perhaps, used to getting his own way. Not unlike our society and like us, perhaps. He was raised with a belief in his own specialness. God thinks you're big stuff, Moses. He rescued you out of the water. He's got big plans for your life. Not only has he rescued you, you're now the, the grandson of the king. Wow. It's going to take something dramatic in Moses' life to shatter that, self, that sense of self-reliance and self-importance. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith... Moses refused to be known as Pharaoh's daughter. So there was a moment in, in Moses' life where he refused to, to take the title for himself of being Pharaoh's daughter's son and became an Israelite. That, there was that moment. But right now, in what we've read, he, he's, like, he's in between. He's not an Egyptian because he's just killed an Egyptian, but he's not yet a true Israelite. He's a self-made man. He's self-reliant. You see, true Israelites seek their praise from God, not from man, the Bible says. True Israelites wrestle with God. That's what the word Israel means. Here, Moses is wrestling, but he's wrestling with a man in the sand and not a God in the heavens. And we're like that. I am. You see, true to the spirit of self-reliance, Moses takes matters into his own hands. He does what perhaps he thinks God should have done a long time ago. He kills one of the captors. Moses wants to be his people's deliverer. He just isn't yet the kind of man God's going to use for the job. When the Israelites criticize instead of congratulate him, his heart quakes and he runs. Moses hasn't been given God's commissioning. He's not the Messiah. He's just a naughty boy with blood on his hands. And as sin always does, his sin here makes him afraid, afraid of Pharaoh. You see, Moses doesn't yet fear God. He fears the king. And whilst you might think, well, that fear is understandable and reasonable, the Pharaoh was the world's most powerful man at the time. Nevertheless, he is, after all, just a man. In time, later in his life, Moses is going to march unafraid into Pharaoh's palace and prophesy and pronounce the death, not of one slave, one slave driver, but of multitudes of infants. And he's going to do it unafraid. But before he can do that, God has to refocus his Moses' fear. You see, when a man or woman doesn't fear God, but relies on themselves, they leave themselves open to being afraid of everything and anything. 
a uh, atheist, Frank Ferretti, who's a global expert on what's known as our culture of fear. He points out that moral confusion in society has led to an inability to deal with fear and has caused a rise in anxiety and an increase in protective fences being erected all around us. Moral confusion, he says, has led to more fear, not less. See, whereas in the 1920s, atheists were you know, loudly boasting and promising that if we threw off religion, which was the source of fear, they said, if we threw off religion, we'd become free and fearless. But in actual fact, the opposite has happened. Listen to what the author Mike Reeves says. He says, therein is, a, is an extraordinary paradox. We live more safely than ever before, from seatbelts and airbags in our cars to the removal of lead paint and asbestos from our homes. Our safety is guarded more than our shorter-lived ancestors could have imagined. We have antibiotics to protect us from infections that in other centuries would have been all too easily fatal. But rather than rejoicing, he says, we worry we're becoming immune and so heading for a post-antibiotic health apocalypse. Though we are more prosperous and secure, though we have more safety than almost any society in history, safety has become the holy grail of our culture. And like the holy grail, it is something we can never quite reach. Protected like never before, we are skittish and panicky like never before. When a man or woman doesn't fear God, they leave themselves open to being afraid of everything and anything. Jesus said, don't fear man or don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and afterwards cannot kill the soul, but rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, COVID is worrying, but it isn't as scary as God. Imagine a child being bullied by a kid at school. The child is afraid of the bully until his dad arrives and dominates the scene. Now both children are afraid of the dad. The bully with trembling, the son with awe and reverence. It's like in the movie The Lion King. Simba is being chased by the hyenas, scared to death, until Mufasa arrives. And it's not as though Simba is no longer afraid when his dad is there. He's more afraid than before. But it's a fear of honor and respect that is born out of a position of security and safety. And you see, depending on whether you're the bully and the hyenas or the sun and Simba, your fear will either be a fear that causes you to run and hide and tremble, or it'll be a fear that causes you to tremble with delight. Christian fear laughs with incredulous wonder at the intricate, miracle-working power of a God who can do far more than we could ever even dare to ask or imagine. I was talking to someone only this, this past week who was kind of laughing with amazement as they told me how God had weaved together all of these tiny little incidental threads in their lives dating back over decades. They weaved them together to come together at one point and they were just in awe at God's dealings with them. They were in awe, speechless, surrendered in delight, but with fear and trembling before a being like that. Uh, some friends of mine I went to uni with have been living in London. Uh, he's, he's been a teaching pastor at a church there. And recently, he felt, he's felt God call him on. And uh, they booked an appointment to go visit some friends who run a prophetic school in Glasgow. 
On the night before they went to see the friends in Glasgow, he had a dream. In the dream, he felt the person from the prophetic school said to him, I'll meet you in Oxford. The next day he gets up, he, goes to, he didn't tell anybody about this apart from his wife. The next day he goes to Glasgow, has the prophetic appointment. They're prophesying over him, sharing God's love for him. And then in the midst of it, they say, the time's come for you to go to Oxford. And then a few weeks later, as he's processing that, another friend of him, unbeknownst to him, out of the blue, texts him and says, God's really put you on my heart. I feel like he's telling you it's, the t- it's time to go to Oxford. My friend is moved to Oxford now. He doesn't know what he's doing. He hasn't got a job waiting for him, but he's moved in faith because God has spoken to him. He's moved as one who is in fear of God, but it's a fear born of delight. How can God do that in my life? Several years ago, I was having a conversation with someone who, um, should we say, their, their lifestyle wasn't quite matching their Christian commitments. And we were discussing that. And they were sort of trying to play pick and mix with God's commands. I'll obey this, but not that. Or as I was kind of saying, I don't think you can do that. I, I think if God commands, we obey. And we had this discussion. I said, look, I think ultimately it comes down to, I fear God, and I can't change what his word says. To which the person said, well, I believe in a God of love, not fear. And I thought, oh, that is a common and modern misunderstanding, that those two things are at odds with one another. God loves and hears the cry of his people in Egypt, and he loves them so much he comes to rescue them. But he says to Moses, you need to take your shoes off, because this is holy ground. You think, what? I thought you loved me. Why do I need to take my shoes off? And actually a chapter later, after God has commissioned Moses and sent him, there's this strange moment where God almost kills Moses and he's, and he's saved by the blood sacrifice of circumcision. It's mysterious. But love and fear and trembling before God are not at odds with one another. We, as you know, have just recently, as I, t- I said last week or whatever, we've recently got a puppy as a, as a family. And um, I look at this puppy when I give her her, her food and she trembles <laughs> with excitement before I give her food. She's trembling because she knows I have the power to withhold this food. So she's in awe of my masterful strength. But she's trembling with anticipation because she knows the good that's about to come to her. Christians are to fear God like that. We can be in danger of sentimentalizing God and of reducing him to little more than just a coach in our corner, another lifestyle guru who promises us to help release our inner potential. No, no, in the desert, you are stripped of self-reliance and your fear is refocused. Paul Miller again, he says, In the desert, the things that brought us life gradually begin to die Our idols die for lack of food. The still dry air of the desert brings with it a sense of helplessness, the sense of helplessness that is so crucial to the spirit of prayer. And you come face to face with your inability to live, to have joy, to do anything of lasting worth. Life is crushing you. That's what the desert is. But the desert becomes a window into the heart of God. He finally gets your attention because he's the only game in town. You cry out to God so long and so often that a channel begins to open up between you and God. When driving, you turn off the radio just to be with God. At night, you drift in and out of prayer while you're sleeping. The clear, fresh water of God's presence becomes a well inside your own heart. You realize that the best gift of the desert is God's 
presence. You know, with his self-reliance and self-importance intact, it landed him in trouble. But what needs to happen next to Moses is a proper reliance on God. You see, once you've realized your own limitations, I can't beat an invisible virus. I can't keep myself healthy and safe. I can't overcome my inner anxieties. Once you realize that, if you're not careful, the temptation is that you, you, you can end up opting out of the game altogether. Just trying to pull up the drawbridge of life and surround myself with as much security and safety as I can. Veni vidi vici, says Caesar. I came, I saw, I conquered. Well, good for Caesar. But for most of us, it's more like I came, I tried, I realized I couldn't, decided not to try again. <laughs> What's the point? The Apostle Paul, however, a man who encountered his own limitations in dramatic fashion on the road to um, Damascus, he says, I can do all things, which sounds like self-reliance, except he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Paul learned that in a desert of his own. A friend sent me this infographic recently that I found particularly helpful. There's an upward diagonal line that is our heroic journey through life. All of us begin life on this journey. I've arrived. I am God's gift to the world. Ah, God thinks I'm big stuff. This heroic journey, I'm going to conquer the world. I'm going to solve all the world's problems. I'm going to become the next president. And then at some point, you reach a crisis of your own limitations. A crisis where you realize, I'm not God. I can't do everything. I can't even lead myself very well, let alone the lives of the people around me. And at that point, faced with the crisis of your own limitations, you have a choice. You can either ignore it and plow on through regardless. At this point, you become an old fool. I mean, you, when, you, when you reach a crisis of your own limitations, you're going to become a fool. You are a fool. You've realized, I'm not a hero, I'm a fool. And what do you do? Well, I'm going to become, you can either just press on regardless and become an old fool. Ignore the fact that you've got limitations. Try to convince yourself and others that you're, you are, in fact, a hero. And become the sort of person that others, they don't say it to your face because they don't want to hurt your feelings, but they think, he's delusional, she's delusional. She doesn't know that she's not the hero that she thinks she is. Or you can, your life can flatline and you can become an embittered fool. Life owes me, God owes me, I didn't get, it's not fair, and I'm just going to sit in that for the rest of my life. Or your life responds to the limitations and it takes a downward turn as you become a holy fool. Holy, because the word holy means set aside for God. I'm his. I'm not a hero, and I'm not going to become bitter. I'm not going to opt out of the game altogether. I'm going to surrender myself to him. And Moses has to learn this. You and I have to learn this. See, God appears through to, to Moses in glory through fire. And he tells him, I am the God of your forefathers. And then he says, I've heard my people's cry for help, and I'm sending you, Moses. But you see, this is the very thing that Moses wanted at the beginning. This is what got him into trouble in the first place. He wanted to be his people's deliverer. And now here it is. God's offering it to him. I'm sending you. And Moses, at this point, has opted out of the game and decided, no, I'm nothing. I can't. His crisis of his own limitations has led him to give up. So the conversation goes like this. God, <coughs> Moses, 
I, the God of your forefathers, the one who worked miracles, I'm sending you to free my people. Moses, "Mm, I don't think so. I'm nobody special. God, but I will be with you. Moses, but what if they ask me who sent me? I don't know. I don't even know your name. I don't think I can. God, I am the eternal God. Tell them that and they'll listen to you, Moses. Moses, "Mm, uh, they still won't listen to me. God, I'll give you some superpowers to impress them with. Put your stick on the ground. I'll turn it into a snake. Put your hand in your cloak and pull it out. I'll make it diseased and clean, diseased and clean. Moses, yeah, I'm not very good at talking. I I have a stammer. God, but I made your mouth. I can help you speak. Moses, nah, (laughs) isn't there someone else you can send? I've got sheep to look after. Until eventually God says, fine, take your brother Aaron with you. He can speak on your behalf. Moses presents all of these objections to God, and God just keeps saying, but I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. In the desert, God wants your attention. He wants to strip you of your self-reliance, and he wants to refocus your fear away from fearing the world, fearing man, to fearing him, away from fearing unemployment or bankruptcy or wayward children or illness or COVID or embarrassment or failure. He wants to refocus your fear away from those things and onto him. And then, once he's got your attention, he's willing to then empower you to do more than you ever thought he would send you and use you to do. In Psalm 23, we get a glimpse into the beautiful dynamic of God working with us in deserts. It begins, the psalm begins with God leading us in front. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He leads me besides paths of still waters. And then it ends with God following us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, the psalm says. But in the middle, when he's experiencing a desert that is the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. God begins by leading you and he ends by following you with goodness. But when things are most difficult, when you're in the desert, he says, I'm with you. You don't need to fear evil because I am there. That's what God does in deserts. That's what he gets your attention for. That's why he kills the other gods and idols in your life. Because he wants to cause you to trust in him and trust him alone. Let's pray.